0: This is a whole observatory podcast.
1: 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, zero. Welcome to Star Stuff. The space
0: Modern team. Hello, and welcome back to Star Stuff. I'm Cody Halfmoon, and today I am joined by co-host Haley Osborne. Hello, everybody. And our special guest, Dr. Christina Thomas. Hello. Hi, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yay, exciting. Um, I'm going to do a quick bio. Uh, this is a, what we would consider a short bio for Christina, but it is, <laughs> there's a lot packed in here. Dr. Thomas is an assistant professor at Northern Arizona University. She has been named an emerging scholar in the January 2020 issue of Leading Education Magazine, Diverse Issues in Higher Education. Her research focuses on the study of asteroids, particularly those that present a risk of impacting the Earth. Thomas has nearly 2.5 million in active grants from NASA, which is considered incredibly high for a junior researcher in this field. She's also a guaranteed time observer for NASA's recently launched James Webb Space Telescope, which is an acknowledgement of the contributions she's made to the development of the mission. And it's just very, it's all just very exciting. Hopefully, uh, Christina, that all still is super exciting. And just at this point, uh, you get to enjoy some of the awe and excitement about the James Webb finally launching and getting first
1: light this week. Oh, absolutely. I feel like it's been years in the making for me.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. It's been years in the making, period, huh? Yeah. It's true. yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so before we get into how incredible you're just, your whole background is. Um really quickly, of course, today we are talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh what was that process like, like behind the scenes? What what insights can you give us as um, you know, a, a researcher as a part of this mission?
1: Uh well so I started to be involved with uh the telescope probably about a decade ago or almost a decade ago, when I was a postdoctoral scholar at um, NASA's Goddard space flight center. And so that's where much of the telescope itself was built actually. And so, uh, when I was out there, I could actually go peek into the windows of the clean room and see it as uh, it was coming together. And so it was something that a lot of the other, uh, postdocs and myself like to do periodically. And we all got our selfies of our reflection uh, in the, in the gold mirrors and things like that. So, um, so it was really an exciting time to be at Goddard uh, as this uh, as this telescope was really moving towards being a reality and actually being launched. And so, uh, you know, this goes far beyond my involvement, right? People have been planning for JWST for quite a long time. Uh, and while I was there, uh, I was introduced to... Uh, the Guaranteed Time Observations program uh, through Heidi Hamel, uh, who's an interdisciplinary scientist okay. uh, for JWST, and Stephanie Malone. Sorry, Malang. what does that mean, interdisciplinary scientist? I, you know, that means that <laughs> she does a lot of things. Okay, <laughs> but, okay. But primarily, uh, that means that she actually applied for these Guaranteed Time Observations a long time ago, um, oh. and we're talking something like 20 years ago. Uh, that she was approved wow. to be part of the scientific, um, you know, foundation of this observatory, and so she brings uh, with her a lot of expertise about solar system observations, and in particular, she likes to observe uh, the outer planets, uh, and and really study the details there. And so she's been involved with with the mission for quite a long time, uh, and you know, together with Stephanie Malam, uh, who is a uh, civil servant at NASA Goddard. Uh, She's now the deputy project scientist for planetary science. Uh, So Heidi and Stephanie really kind of created this effort um, that originally started with a bunch of focus groups. And so I was named the focus group lead for Near Earth Asteroids. And so what they wanted us to do was to reach out to the community and see what people were interested in and what the open questions were that JWST could start to address for various things. And so uh, I had that focus group and my colleague, Andy Rivkin, had a focus group on asteroids more generally. So mostly uh, main belt stuff, but also thinking about Trojan asteroids. Uh, and then, you know, so on throughout the solar system, there's a focus group for the outer planets, there's one for Mars, this one for comets. And that led us to a series of papers uh, where we published what we thought JWST would be able to do. And in my case, thinking about the near Earth asteroids, it was really thinking about how many asteroids could actually be observed. There's very specific conditions on where JWST can point and how mm-hmm. fast it can move uh, mm-hmm. relative to the background stars. And so that was one of the big questions when it came to near Earth objects. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, after we published all these papers, uh, Heidi and Stephanie extended the invitation to us to become part of this overall effort with the Guaranteed Time Observations and to send them essentially ideas for what targets we thought should be observed uh, once the telescope was actually open for science obs- observations, right? And it was really exciting. This was many, many years ago. And the first time we sent them uh, ideas and we you know did this initial planning process, the, the launch was supposed to be I can't even remember, in like 2018 or something.
0: And yeah, one of the many launch dates, right? One of
1: the many launch dates. And so we kind of kept updating as as things moved forward in time. And eventually we ended up on the slate of observations that we have now.
0: That's amazing. Uh, and it's it's incredible. Uh, you said that, uh, was it Heidi, uh, had been approved for a time 20, two decades ago.
1: It was quite a while ago. That's I I That's had to yeah, go back and check exactly when. right. Um,
0: That's amazing. Just how long, um, because just from like a public standpoint, we've all been just holding our breath and very excited. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I imagine it's been even more uh, tedious for everyone waiting to get their research (laughs) hands on the mirrors.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And so Heidi, you know, having put in this proposal such a long time ago, she reached out to us primarily because she wanted to make sure that she had people who were focusing on all the different aspects of the solar system, right? She had her area of expertise, but she didn't necessarily feel like she wanted to be the person picking the asteroid observations, right? She wanted somebody that, you know, sat focusing on asteroids all day, like myself and Andy Rifkin, to, Mm -hmm. to select those targets. And so she really wanted to make sure that she was doing a service to the entire solar system community. And so it's been really great to work with her on that and to make sure that we actually are... Uh, putting together target lists that people are going to be excited about, people are going to want to know more about and answer questions that have been open for quite a long time. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, so you mentioned a guaranteed time observer. Uh, and so for context, I would assume that's just someone who's like, yeah, you're definitely going to get to see the James Webb. Is that, is that what that term refers to?
1: Yeah. And so uh, there are a number of other projects that fall under the guaranteed time uh, umbrella. And so we refer to them as the GTOs. Um, And so these projects are primarily going to be uh, observed in the first year of operation. So what we call cycle one, uh, with a small number of them pushed back to the second year. And so these are things that are going to be kind of upfront with the telescope. We didn't have to go through the general observer cycle call. Um, since it had been approved so far in advance. Um, One of the other things that Heidi required from us as we joined her team uh, was that there would be no proprietary period on our data. Uh, And so that basically means that the second that our data comes down, it's available to the community so that people can start to play with it, right? They can start to see what the data products look like, right? Because nobody's worked with the data before, right? And and people are going to want to think about applying for future cycles, they're going to want to think about what the telescope can do for them in a very real sense. And so, so you're just
0: opening up sort of like um, like a you know uh, Nikola Tesla style. like here's all of our data and information. Godspeed.
1: <laughs> Something like that. I mean, we're also going to do, you know, a full analysis and publish papers on it and things like that. Right. But you know, making sure that people actually understand how all of these data formats work and what you can expect when you get time on the telescope. I think that's going to be awesome. very useful for everyone.
0: It's very competitive. Yeah,
1: yeah, it certainly is.
0: That's amazing. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, congrats on getting your time.
2: if you don't mind me asking, uh, you know, I I know your research has a lot to do with asteroids. Is that something that you're going to be using the James Webb to study?
1: Yeah. So um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about near Earth asteroids in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's that's what we're going to be doing, uh, you know, with with the time that's been allocated to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we have two targets in particular. One is Phaethon. Uh, and so Phaethon is one of the, well, it is the only asteroid uh, that is uh, connected to a meteor shower. And so it's been a really interesting target for a long time. In fact, up at Lowell, I know astronomer Nick Moskovitz has worked on Phaethon mm-hmm. in the past and so has uh, mm-hmm. postdoc Teddy Coretta. And so mm-hmm. I think that it's going to be really interesting to add to the story of Phaethon overall. And mm-hmm. um the other target is going to be at least the other near earth asteroid is going to be uh, Didymos, which is the target of the upcoming, uh, dart kinetic impact. And yep. so we're going to image at the moment of impact. And so there's still a little bit of uncertainty right now on exactly how that's going to be set up. Uh, but we're really excited about that opportunity.
0: So excited. Yeah. We're planning to do like a live stream or some event or something for the dart impact. Uh, And I know uh, Dr. Moskowitz has an interactive display here at Lowell Observatory now where you can like kind of play with the meteors and learn Mm -hmm. about them on these big displays. Um, And of course, we just had (laughs) Asteroid Day uh, on June 30th, celebrating all of this as well, where um, it's just it's so interesting to 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 not only hear about the research that all of you are doing on near Earth asteroids, but amazing just how casually it's like, oh, yeah, we're researching that at Lowell or at NAU, Mm -hmm. Uh, just like down the street from the Starbucks. uh, (laughs) People are like doing insane research on Earth asteroids for planetary defense. I mean, it's just it's really neat. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's great to have you on the podcast today, too, just to talk a little bit about that, um, because I feel like more people need to know. Every time we talk about, yeah, they're researching this, and yes, it is a part of a planetary defense structure, people are like, what? That sounds like a movie.
1: (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's true. It became a whole separate almost field, right, of astronomy over the last few years that's beyond just studying asteroids, and it's been really exciting to see that grow. Yeah. Uh, So
0: the purpose of your uh, your research into uh, near Earth asteroids, NEAs, NEOs, is, is that? Do I get the acronym right?
1: Well, I mean, so it's ever so slightly different. NEOs being oh. uh, objects, and near Earth objects, and so that could include comets, uh, aliens. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> could, could include all sorts of things, you know, whatever's uh-huh. out there. Uh, but yeah, so near Earth asteroids is just the more specific group. That's just the rocky bodies. Mm.
0: And um, are you specifically looking for ones that are on a trajectory toward Earth? Or are you really just researching all of them just to learn more in general about asteroids? Uh,
1: Generally speaking, I uh, come at it from a survey perspective to think about what the population is overall. And we certainly do tend to target things that become high priority whenever we think that uh, there might be... uh, Potentially hazardous asteroid or things like that. Um, you know, as as I uh, have mentioned, you know, the DART mission is, is certainly a whole new field, and so there's a whole lot of targets that become very interesting from a planetary defense perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the uh, exciting things about uh, JWST is that it has a really interesting orbit. It's you know doing this halo orbit right. around the second Lagrange point, uh, and so if an asteroid has an orbit really similar to earth, it might actually be really hard to target it just because of the geometry of the situation. And so, uh, it's going to be really tricky, uh, to, Wait, to think it's, about it, that
0: it has a halo orbit around the Lagrange point. Yeah. So it, so I thought it was like a fixed spot in
1: space. No, it's orbiting that spot. What? Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's insane. It's orbiting a spot in space, just a random nothing, spot of nothing.
1: Well, I mean it's it's a it's a very uh interesting spot from a physicist's perspective, like with the, mm-hmm. the gravity and uh, but yeah, no, it's the the spot is empty. Yeah. There's nothing there.
0: That's insane. Yeah, I remember uh we did have a podcast about this and we were joking about the three body problem. Uh yeah and and Wesley was trying to say like oh yeah so you just pretend there's another object and you worry about that later uh, there's not something there and it's like man this is just like thank god I did not major in this so good like nightmare to understand um so okay so it will be orbiting I'm assuming its view will go like parallel to the earth so it's not gonna like see the earth on any of its orbits
1: Right, so like it's it's on an orbit outside of Earth's orbit, and they're going around the Sun together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it basically has to be that the big sun shield that you see, uh, you know, that's made of this really thin Mylar, uh, but mm-hmm. is very effective at keeping it cool. That has to always be between the Earth and the Sun and what uh, the rest of space essentially. Uh, right. And so okay. and so that really limits what you can actually observe because that sun shield cannot, you know, tilt too far away. Okay. And so if you're trying to look back towards the earth, where some of the near earth objects are, it actually turns out to be quite hard.
0: Right. Yeah. I can't crane its neck back. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you have to wait for it to come out to you.
0: Ah, oh, okay. That's fun. And how long is your, um, how long do you get time on the James Webb
1: for your it's- part? So right now it's already been scheduled. It's just the two targets, uh, which is Phaethon and Didymos. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we have something like 10 hours between the two. Oh my God. Yeah.
0: 10 hours, no pressure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So we've been spending a lot of time over the last couple of years, making sure that all of the observational setup (sighs) is right. And people just keep on um, reviewing it and making sure that we haven't made any, you know, rookie mistakes essentially, because nobody else has done this before. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it, it's a little bit of a high pressure game. I I keep thinking every time I submit them that like, I really hope someone's reviewing this because I think I did it right, but you know, I have no (gasps) previous experience. Oh my
0: gosh. Oh, that's nerve wracking, man. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Speaking of nerve wracking, um, what was it like for you and the team during the launch and unfurling process of uh, the mirrors? Was it exciting, nerve wracking, a little bit of both?
1: Certainly, a little bit of both. Um, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I I remember thinking that I was not going to get up early on on Christmas morning to watch it because I just didn't know if I could do that to myself. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, was, I was very stressed out about it. And, and I thought, you know what, if I just wake up at my normal time, it will either be up in the sky or it won't. Yeah. And, and it was. And so it was very, very much a huge relief uh, to, to see it. And, you know there yeah. there were so many independent steps that had to happen in the in the right order, and they all had to happen correctly in order for us to get to the place that we are today. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were, you know, kind of worksheets and things like that that you could download from the website that would show you exactly where you were and like what was the next step and things like that. And I remember checking in on them, and I could see all my other friends on social media checking in on them. Like, <laughs> okay, well we got to this. Great job. Tomorrow is this, you know, the next uh, step. Yeah, and, exhausting. Yeah, and and I I thought, you know, I've seen NASA do so many things very well that I was like, I think we I think we're gonna get through this, but they've never really set themselves up for a situation with so many steps. Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. And it was. Uh, and it was sometimes NASA's
0: a little surprising. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was
1: incredibly <laughs> stressful. Uh, you know, when we have other um missions, you know, say Hubble for instance, you know, we had the ability to go and interact with Hubble. If something went wrong, the astronauts would go up and they would fix it. And you know, one of the things about this was that we were sending it really far away, uh, maybe not in astronomical scale, but we're sending it far away uh, from a human perspective, and that was right. it. It just had to work
0: Higher so, than a ladder. <laughs> yeah. but you there is a handle on it though i is this rumor true that they actually did like add a handle to it for like just in case we ever get out there i I actually don't know (laughs) i i heard that on this podcast from someone so i was like oh a handle (laughs) i guess just in case you know you never know Okay, yeah, I remember hearing about this story from uh, Ariel, Mm -hmm. um, one of our science communicators here who's uh, very excited about the James Webb. Uh, So, yeah, the James Webb, it's not always been smooth sailing, (laughs) (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, So, it was dropped, Uh, it was hit by a meteorite. what, uh, what, what happened? It was dropped. It was hit by this meteorite. What really happened here? And uh, what was that like witnessing it as someone who was more intimately involved with the telescope?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So when it was, um, when it was still on earth, I I feel like I had a little bit of, um, of just overall doubt, right? The timeline had been pushed back so much. It felt like every time they took it in for a test, something crazy happened. There was a the time they shook it and a bunch of screws fell out, and I, <laughs> and I was like, "How how are we still here? Uh, you know, I I don't understand." And but... why would you shake it like a Christmas present, like just to
0: see? Well, it, it was
1: a, it was a test. There was a test <laughs> oh. to make sure that it could survive the launch, right? So like yeah. that's a that's a very standard standard test. But like you know, <laughs> I I felt like. I felt like it was very much Murphy's law with this telescope. Mm-hmm. It was just yes. like, you know, if it could happen, it would happen. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I was, I was really trying to like keep my pessimism in uh, yeah, uh-huh. because I, 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 I was uh, yeah. And it's so realistic we, we just,
0: expectations.
1: Yeah, exactly. We, we just kind of kept looking forward to, you know, one day it's all going to be fine. It's, it's, you know, it's just going to take time. It's all going to be fine. And so, I still kind of have that perspective and, and I think that it, it is going to be fine. One of the things I keep reminding myself is, you know, this telescope JWST was, was made to have a finite lifetime. You know, yeah, we are so impressed because Hubble is still up there, which is not what we expected, right? Hubble has been going for mm-hmm. such a long time that I think that we anticipate that uh, JWST could do something similar, but that's not necessarily the case. It has a finite lifetime. The instruments have to be cooled. There needs right. to be enough um, thrust to kind of keep it in that that halo orbit, right? There, there are very finite resources on that telescope that we can't change. It, it mm-hmm. is what it is, and when it's all done, it's all done. And so, you know, I keep just being like, we we have ten years. You know, maybe we get more, but we have 10 years to do all of the great things that we could do and things are going to happen in those 10 years and stuff is going to change and it's going to, you know, not be the pristine telescope that we sent up, you know, six months mm-hmm. ago. But uh, so I just kind of keep telling myself that we just have to make 10 years, like 10 years, yeah. 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 you know, compared to some of the NASA missions is really not all that long.
0: It's not. It's it's actually surprising to hear that, that that's yeah. its expected uh, lifespan. Um, but you know, NASA always, I feel like it always, uh, tries to over prepare uh, for things. Yeah. So it's like, oh, let's build it. So it'll last 50 hoping for 10,
2: yeah. um,
0: you know, just like, was it, uh, Sally ride, uh, going up oh, to, gosh. to space and they're like, how about a hundred tampons for six days? Right. Does that sound good? <laughs> um, just like, just in case you never know.
1: <laughs> Right, and everyone thinks that it probably will last longer than ten years, but you know,
0: right? Yeah. So, uh, so Will Grundy here at Lowell also has time on the on the James Webb, right? Or at least he's yes. a part of a one of our one of our astronomers here has time there.
1: Yeah. So um, Will Grundy is a member of the Lucy uh, team, which is the, the spacecraft mission to the Trojan asteroids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so right now in the asteroid field the Trojan asteroids are very interesting uh, because there's so much we still don't know about them. They're, they're a little bit mysterious when it comes to composition. And mm-hmm. the great thing about JWST is that we are using this telescope to look at different wavelengths than a lot of the telescopes that we have on the ground look at.
0: Right, because Red. you can't
1: actually, right. yeah, it's infrared. Okay. Infrared, yeah so, yeah, so it's beyond even what we could see from the ground. It's it's uh, where essentially our atmosphere is opaque, um, mm-hmm. and so we we know from Spitzer Space Telescope observations that Trojans have a lot of spectral features in that wavelength range, and so the Lucy team put together a proposal uh, to look at their targets to observe their targets in that wavelength range and to really understand better, uh, what they can expect to see when they get there. Awesome.
2: Um, before I get to the next question, could you really quickly define Trojan asteroid for the people who don't know what
1: that is? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Trojan asteroids are very interesting, uh, from a physical perspective. They are also in these Lagrange points, uh, you know, just like, uh, J-davis-t is in L2. Uh, the Trojan asteroids are in the L4 and the L5 clouds. So it's a, it's a kind of a big region. Uh, and so these clouds are in front of and behind Jupiter, and they go around the sun at the same rate as Jupiter. Uh, so wait, they're in Jupiter's Lagrange points? Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. So they're just rocks stuck in space.
1: Yeah, they're stuck in these in these clouds uh, along Jupiter's orbit.
0: Okay, I'm just now learning that asteroids don't need to be shooting through space in that way. Yeah. I mean, I guess we're all shooting through space, but I just I pictured it as like these huge orbits mm. going around our solar system. That's not the case.
2: That's more like comets. Comets.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah, well, maybe I just don't know what an could asteroid be. is.
0: Yeah. Good to know.
1: <laughs> I mean, to be fair, asteroids have become... More than we thought they were, right? It turns out that asteroids and comets are more closely related than we thought. There's a lot of overlap, you know, so it's... It's just ice and rock is the difference, right? Essentially, but the way that we define it as different is, does it have a tail or does it not? Ah, So if you have an icy asteroid that doesn't have a tail, then technically we would call it an asteroid, but...
0: Mm-hmm. Oh man, it was that and that was a part of the 2006 uh, redefining from it right It wasn't wasn't that one of the conversations because they were like, oh well, all of these would be planets and Sharon would be a planet. Um, but other now these are asteroids and they were deba- debating
1: what would be called what um, not that qu- when not quite because that, that's still a conversation that's happening. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Okay, we're still talking about this, you know. Like, what do you want to call them? Do you want to call them dormant comets or active asteroids, or like, wait, like, how, how do we, you know, these ones in the middle? How do we draw that line? Do we draw that line? Do we just give up and say they're all small bodies in the solar system, and they're all super interesting? And you know? yeah, we got well, and then plutoids, you have centaurs. And
2: centaurs,
1: centaurs.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We talked to Dr. Teddy about that.
0: Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> uh, plutoids, which are out near. The Kuiper Belt, right? Yep. Um, so then these, you said Jupiter is, it's its the like Lagrange point of Jupiter?
1: Yeah, so it's the L4 and the L5 Lagrange points around Jupiter. Oh but t- to be fair, other planets can have Trojan asteroids too. So there's a handful around Mars. Um, Neptune has some. Uh, we don't debate, have any. People debate whether or not we have some. Uh, we, we seem to have like temporary ones. Um, yeah. Yeah but cool. it's like, it's like, what? like one or two. It's not, it's not like the Tro- The Trojans of Jupiter are these clouds that have thousands of objects, thousands of known objects.
0: Like the Trojan horse. I get it. Yeah. It's a cloud, but it's a ball of asteroids. Okay. <laughs> That's cute. That is well,
1: cute. I mean, the, the actual cute part is one of the clouds is named all Trojan characters from the Iliad and the other cloud is named all the Greek characters. Oh, <laughs> except that's for scary. one in each cloud is like a spy. And so there's one Trojan in the Greek cloud and vice versa.
0: Oh my God. Are you serious? So that's super awesome. serious. Yeah.
1: You should look it up. Uh, it's actually super fun.
0: I love astronomers too. They're my favorite type of nerd. I just love I them. I love, I love the them. way they name oh everything.
1: <laughs> gosh. No, I think the way astronomers name things is actually quite funny. There's a lot of uh, great. hidden jokes. And mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. There's also just a lot of astronomers in, in in the main belt, in particular. The main asteroid belt has a ton of asteroids named after astronomers. So mm-hmm.
0: it's true, yeah. Uh, and I know I don't think it's an is it an asteroid. Um, every five or 10 years, uh, as a, an employee at Lowell, mm-hmm. you get uh, I think a comet name. no, not a it's comet, an Ast- the other Ast- one, Ast- an asteroid, the yeah. comet's the big one. Yeah. An asteroid and Haley already have a comet named after you. So like, that's not fair.
2: I'm um, named after a comet, but I have an asteroid true. named after me now because I've been at Lowell for five years. <laughs> oh,
0: wow. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, I love the naming conventions. I'll always think of, uh, Dr. Gerard Van Bell's Pokemon survey. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, cool. Anyway, sorry. I digress.
2: Going back to James Webb, today, the uh, first light images were released uh so what is the difference between the uh first images that came from james webb so like a while ago when we got those like star pictures and everything and the first
1: light images that we will see today it's a good question uh so primarily i think it's going to come down to some of the scientific value uh, of the images you know there's certainly a lot of star fields that you could see that they were using for focusing and making sure the mirrors were aligned and things like that but i think they're also going to um Be focusing on the science for some of these uh, first images, but also, you know, thinking about things that really capture the public's imagination. Um, Mm -hmm. There are so many incredible pictures from Hubble Space Telescope uh, that do very much that. You know, you have the Pillars of Creation, you have the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, you have all of these uh, images that are really able to convey a lot more about the science than we really could in the words. And I don't think you get that mm-hmm. from some, uh, seeing some of these alignment pictures, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, oh. a lot of us as scientists have been looking uh, to compare, you know, what did the Spitzer image of this region look like versus the one that they released when they were doing the mirror alignment? And we're very impressed. But I yeah. think that these these first images that are coming down are going to be far beyond that. I think they're really going to be very mind-blowing. I don't know yeah. what they're going to be yet. I'm very excited to see them myself.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. me too. um, But is it going to look a bit different than the ones taken by the Hubble because it focuses on infrared light? Or is that just where it's, if if that just is only the direction that the thing is going, right?
1: Right. So, you you know, using infrared light, we see different things. Uh, And so for instance, one of the things that's going to be really interesting for a lot of the science uh, that JWST does uh, is that. Uh, with infrared light, you can essentially see through dust to the stars behind it. So especially in star forming regions that might be really dusty, something like, say, the Pillars of Creation, uh, you know, you see that as a lot of dust. If you look at that area with JWST, then you're probably actually going to see the stars that are forming behind that dust instead. you know, I don't know exactly what wavelengths, how it would change over the various wavelengths that are available to JWST, but that's, uh, you know, essentially what you're going to get. And so it's going to be a whole new playing field because the yeah. wavelengths are different. Um, one of the other interesting things to note is that because these are wavelengths that we don't see with our eyes, uh, they're going to be what's called false colored. And so we're going to try to associate the best possible colors for people's, you um, you know, understanding of what's happening to the wavelengths that we're observing. And so it's not going to be one-to-one uh, in terms of color. You know, if you were actually able to see it with your eyes, it wouldn't look the same. That's Photoshop. See. Yeah, basically. <laughs> it's Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> Which we so also pictures- do with Hubble, but, you know, it's a little mm-hmm. bit different because, right. you know, you can actually try to use the more true to color. Yeah.
0: Um, well, even the pillars of creation that Hubble took, that was all color corrected. Yeah. I mean, that was all Photoshopped. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> Um, even if it was like accurately like, oh, we can't see it, but if we could, exactly, um, it, that's not what it looked like when it was processed through the Hubble. So, you know, right. Am I am I making that
1: up? That's absolutely true. So, so what we do is we, we take images in different filters, which are associated with specific wavelengths, and then we put all of that information back together. Uh, and that's how we make the the overall image that you might see
2: on a much, much, much smaller scale. That's actually what we do with one of our telescopes up at the GODO, the GVLA Open Deck Observatory. We have a CCD camera on our 17 inch plane wave and we do the same thing where you take multiple exposures in uh, different filters and then put it all together. So I think it's pretty cool. (laughs) Still
0: cool, yeah. And um, also in a podcast, we talked about the edges of the known, the visible universe and theories on what's beyond that. Uh, will the James Webb be giving us a peek into any of that super deep space stuff, or is it mostly more near Earth?
1: Uh, you know, that's certainly one of the big overall objectives of the mission itself uh, is to study the the early universe, right? So, so you know, if we think about distance and time being related, because it, when we're thinking yep. about space, they are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is a essentially a distance that Hubble can see. And that's associated with, you know, some specific age of the universe. And we're hoping to push even farther back, right? And think about the very first stars, the very first galaxies. What does the early mm-hmm. universe actually look like overall as a whole? Um, and, and so we have some hints of that from, from various other observations, but we're really hoping to study that in great detail. And I think it's going to be really, really exciting.
0: Yeah, that's insane. John was bending my mind, uh, when we were talking about like what that means and like the visible universe and all of that. He was like, well, you get to a point where time didn't exist yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> physics just don't work yet. They don't work there. Um, <laughs> like physics are broken at a certain point. And even with certain like gravitational pulls, like I just learned that we are a part of uh, obviously like a solar system, a part of a galaxy, a part of a cluster of galaxies, a part of a whole like highway of galaxies going toward each other in some direction Mm -hmm. Uh, on when they all eventually collide, it's just going to break time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I don't know that uh, blew my mind. And, and that's not even the, right? The observable universe, like it just could, it's even further than that. So it's insane to think that this, this mirror that you got to take a selfie with is going to be giving us glimpses at things at the very beginning of when time existed. Mm
1: -hmm. It's true. It's true. I I think that we all really were trying to take in some of this stuff as we were seeing it, right? Because I, I also remember, you know, seeing... Uh, The engineers coming down from the ceiling, Mission Impossible style, as they were making (laughs) sure that the mirrors, you know, were all lined up, and and like you know, as they were putting this thing together, and I'm just like, number one, the stress of that, like, don't fall on JWST, don't fall, don't sweat, Uh, (laughs) no, catch your sweat drop, like in the movie, you know, and and just kind of seeing this as a very practical thing that had to happen in order to get us to where we are. I mean, I, I I think it's. It's, it's intense, you know, and, and I, I thought about that the entire time as I was following its journey, you know, it, oh, this thing that's going to teach us so much about the universe is just on some random boat going through the yeah. Panama Canal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, you know, in, in many ways has gone from being a very practical, physical object to, you know, kind of all, all of our collective astronomer hopes and dreams.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a very important question. Yeah, did you touch? Did you touch it?
1: No, no, absolutely not. Did not touch it? Ah man, we couldn't even get in the room. Like it was just a big glass wall.
0: Yeah. Ah, is it like? Did were they try to keep it sterile? Or yeah, no Oh man, I would have wanted to (laughs) touch it so bad. Right.
2: So I've got a question for you. Uh, What are you most excited about when it comes to the James Webb Space Telescope?
1: Well, let's see. Uh, So there's a handful of things. And so, like, I have a hard time with just picking one. Um, (laughs) Overall, I think it's going to be really exciting because we have um, all of these wavelengths that we can't observe from the ground. We can't typically observe. You know, Mm -hmm. this really opens up a lot of opportunities for understanding things about asteroids. Yeah. And other objects as well. But, you know, my focus is asteroids, so I'm super excited about them.
0: (laughs) And is that because of the atmosphere, why we can't observe those wavelengths?
1: Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, so the atmosphere is is definitely in the way there. And so I think that this is really going to be super um, illuminating. You know, we had the Spitzer Space Telescope, which... Uh, which taught yeah. us a lot. Illuminating. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, and so we had this picture space telescope that, that you know, it, it it taught us a lot about what we could expect in some of those wavelengths. But, you know, that was, um, you know, also a very finite mission because it needed to be cooled. And, you know, eventually uh, we, w- we weren't able to use it anymore. And so, mm-hmm. so now we have, over a decade's worth of new science questions since Spitzer stopped, you know, operating in those wavelengths, to address here, and so I think it's going to be really great. Um, you know, if I have to be honest, though, I'm really excited to see the Dart impact. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be great. Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm also super biased on that front.
0: Right, right, <laughs> and you're you're into space rocks, like we get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, and the Spitzer, um, that is also in the, the same Lagrange point as the James Webb, right?
1: No, funny. no, that had a, a, a different orbit that was like, oh, I think it was trailing Earth, and it, it just kind of got farther and farther and farther away.
0: Uh, what's the one already out there? Because there's one at this Lagrange point already, right?
1: Yes, I don't know. There's actually a handful of things that are already out there, and more stuff oh. that will be added. Yeah. And why so, couldn't
0: that see this incredible stuff?
1: It was With much smaller. Oh. Yeah. And so one of the interesting things about uh, JWST is that they decided to to make this really big mirror. It had to even uh, collapse so that it would fit into the fairing of the launch mm-hmm. vehicle. And so, you know, before we didn't do that kind of engineering, right? We We basically just sent up single mirrors very much like Hubble. And so Spitzer was a lot smaller.
0: Yeah, they, used, um, they, they had an origami consultant,
1: right, for the folding. I wouldn't be surprised. I, yeah, I mean, it, it yeah. had to fold in a very specific way. That's amazing. <laughs> uh,
0: so we've spent a lot of time talking about the James Webb, which is obviously the point of this episode. But before we run out of time, I really want to talk about your background a little bit, Um, but before we do that, was there anything else about the James Webb that you think would be cool to talk about during this week of the first light being released?
1: Uh, So one of the other things that I think people are going to be really excited about uh, is that there are going to be a lot of observations in the coming years of extrasolar planets, and I know that uh, people are you know, always looking for the next super earth or something like that. And so I think that this is going to be really exciting uh, for understanding, you know, the various compositions, the atmospheres of some of these other planets and thinking about, you know, our place in the universe overall, you know, how it does our solar system compare to the so many other solar systems out there. Um, And, and uh, that also, you know, because I'm totally obsessed with asteroids brings me back to asteroids again for one, right. more, <laughs> one more final thing is that one of the programs that I'm also involved with that was approved over the last cycle uh, is to observe the next interstellar object. Uh, and so whenever that's discovered, we can, you know, Notify the officials over at JWST and say that we want to point the telescope at that object. Uh, and once it's in position, we can do so. And so we're really hoping that something is discovered in the right time period. So not yet, but maybe in a couple of weeks. Um, so in I, a I couple think, of weeks. So
0: you just be like, hey, give me the keys real
1: quick. Yeah. So it's a very specific <laughs> kind of of, of a program called the Target of Opportunities. So essentially mm-hmm. we have, uh, you know, the ability to, to change the program on relatively short notice, not immediate notice, but like a couple of weeks. (laughs)
2: That's so
1: dope. And so I'm really hoping for, you know, an interstellar object to appear because I think it's going to be great. Right? right Right now, we've only known about two. One was asteroid-like, one was comet-like. And so we have prepared for all of those possibilities. Like I said, the huge mm. range between those two objects and whether yeah. or not they're basically the same anyway. Um,
0: but they're <laughs> so coming from another solar system.
1: But coming from another idea. solar system. Okay. And so by studying that object and studying the composition of that object, then we can also start to think about what other solar systems are like and what materials go in to these objects in other solar systems. And so I think it's going to be really exciting, um, so fingers so, crossed. So,
0: um, be straight with me because we are going to get this question if I don't ask it. So here we go. Um, are there any projects on the James Webb space telescope, speaking of looking at, um, planets in other solar systems, uh, is there any effort to look for extraterrestrial life or, uh, or life, uh, supporting planets
1: we're always looking for what we think of as signatures of life you know the things that are associated with life here on earth in particular you know Mm -hmm. or things that would be needed to support the kind of life that we're familiar with and so you Mm -hmm. know do you have enough water or do you see signs of methane or you know different things and so that's one of the things that really drives people to understand you know like what could you see on a different world? And, and of course, life doesn't necessarily mean you know full-on aliens. It could also just mean you know bacterial mats and things like that. You know, kind of like in the early Earth. Uh, but we're always looking for the different kinds of signs because that's one of the big questions that astronomers have. You know, um, and really kind of drives our imagination. Are we alone? Well, what does that mm-hmm. mean? And you know, can we actually study that? And so as our tools get better and better, we can really start to think about that.
0: Yeah, I uh, was talking to some astronomer and John, I don't remember which, it's probably a podcast episode, about um, the our sun, so Sol, and uh, the age of the universe. And Sol is not a very old star, and it is not a very young star, and it's a the right pop two or pop three that could support life um and based on the age of the universe um a star would have to be about the same age as our star as well to support life as we know it um but basically the idea was like life happened as soon as that could happen and that's how we are here uh and so maybe next generations of life would be Possible in other places, but uh, the chances of there being a more advanced and older civilization out there somewhere is like pretty low just because of the age of the universe and how um, life of uh, supporting planets work and how long it takes to get to that point, because you have to go through various evolutions of stars, right? Because it has to spit out enough stuff to make planets. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. And so, you know, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that, yeah, I mean, we're not uh, talking about alien invasions and all sorts of things that you might read about (laughs) in your science fiction, but like, the fact that some other kind of life might exist somewhere else is, is reasonable, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even even within our solar system, right? So that's something that we Mm -hmm. certainly think about within our solar system, too. And so, um, you know, it's one of the things that really... Uh, drives people forward looking for these signatures of processes that might be indicative of, you know, mm-hmm. bacteria, something else.
0: Tell us about like your background. Uh, what, what got you into astronomy? Uh, did you know, like, is, was this always your goal? Did you have other goals when you were Um, pursuing your higher education and kind of climbing up in the world of astronomy.
1: Yeah. And so there's, there's kind of a lot in those questions. And, and, and so, you know, when I was growing up, um, NASA had really started to take a lot of steps forward in terms of solar system exploration. Uh, And so when I was relatively young, um, they had the flybys of Uranus and Neptune with the Voyager missions. And so Mm -hmm. I was, I was in elementary school. I, I remember you know, seeing those pictures, there was a stamp series, you know, Mm -hmm. it it was, um, it was very much a big deal. And and it really, um, made these planets very real. Yeah. And, and I thought that was, that was really interesting, but I think the thing that was uh, a bit more impactful over time was that as I was in high school and into college, we were sending rovers to Mars. We were, uh, launching Cassini. We were, you know, doing all of these things. We, near Shoemaker, which went to the near earth asteroid Eros happened in that time period. And so all all of these things really just started to explode. We were looking at all of the stuff and seeing them as actual worlds. They were actual places. Um, Mm -hmm. and I thought the benefits
0: of the space race paying (laughs) off
1: basically, I mean, and so it it was really well-timed for me because I thought it was particularly interesting, uh, thing to study. And so that's, that's kind of what I did. I, um, you know, I went to graduate school to start to think about, um, what are the connections we can make between meteorites and near Earth asteroids in particular, um, you know, in terms of thinking about compositions and their spectra and, and on all of these things. And, and so it's been really exciting to be able to do that. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was um, part of a survey called Myth NEOS, the MIT Hawaii Near Earth Object Spectroscopic Survey, uh, which uh, I'm actually now running. Uh, oh, wow. so oh, my it's god! Very, Congrats. very exciting. Um,
0: Christina, that's amazing. Yeah,
1: so, so it's been like a month, so I I, I don't know exactly how it's going to go. But like, I, I'm now running this survey, which is going to be very exciting. And Congratulations. Thank yeah, you. Way to go. That's amazing. Yeah, and so it it really is. It kind of blows my mind, and and I've been I've been working on and off with this. But you know, one of the first observations that I took, and I was actually just telling this to someone very recently, is uh, of Apophis, which is this oh, yeah. uh, near Earth asteroid that's going to make this super close approach in April twenty twenty nine, and. Um, and so, you know, when they discovered it, there was a non zero chance of it impacting sometime this century. And so everyone mm-hmm. was like, all hands on deck. You know, we we were observing at the telescope and it was one of the first objects I observed. Uh-huh. And I just kind of was like, this is really interesting. Like, really, yeah. like, you know. Less than 20,000
0: miles from Earth, though. Like, mm-hmm. just for the audience here, it is going to basically graze our. like 30,000 miles in terms of like space is very
1: close. (laughs) It's true. It's going to be incredibly close. It's super exciting, especially since we know there's no, no chance of impact. Right. And so I, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, and so it's kind of been a lot of near earth object stuff, uh, for me for the last 20 years or so. And, uh, it's, it's been really exciting. I saw essentially the kind of the beginnings of planetary defense as a field. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. people have been doing this for much longer than that, but it started to really coalesce into a field uh, and is, Mm -hmm. as now has a thing with missions in it and surveys and all sorts of stuff like that. It's really been um, very spectacular. And so. uh, Very much like
0: the movie Armageddon. Oh god!
1: (laughs) Which also was like when I was in high school, and so you know, know, yeah,
0: people were. I hated that movie so. We did a we did a movie review of it because I learned that Haley hadn't seen it, and I was like, oh my god, I grew up with this movie. Like this was it came out in late 90s i yeah. mean this is like my coming of age was this amazing movie about planetary defense and it did asteroids. not hold up though it didn't uh, i can't believe that i haven't yeah. seen it in a while <laughs>
2: It's really don't bad. rewatch watch
0: it christina don't, don't. i had to watch oil. it at two
2: times speed because it was so bad i was like yeah. i need to get through this
0: <laughs> yeah good music though it's a bop yeah it's a cute little romp um So it sounds like, like, I was really surprised when you said, like, you started even in your graduate uh, programs focusing on these, like, near-Earth asteroids. Like, you started really early with this focus. Uh, It almost reminds me of, like, the Olympics in a kind of way, where, like, you learn about people who, like, have made the Olympics, and it's like, oh, yeah, I started when I was four. It's like, who does that? (laughs) Like, of course you're on the Olympics. Like, of course you're working on the JWST. Of course, you're uh, running, what was it? Oh, the MIT Hawaii yeah,
1: Near-Earth Object Spectroscopic Survey.
0: Can you, can you run that by me really slowly so I can write it down?
1: <laughs> MIT Hawaii Near-Earth Object Spectroscopic Survey.
0: Cool. That's awesome. I'm assuming that they're spelling out something with that... Uh myth neos myth neos yeah okay uh and is that public could we share that like on social media
1: if we yeah would you feel comfortable with that yeah you you could do that yeah and you're leading it yeah yeah like i said it hasn't been that long but yeah the other interesting thing which is why i'm incredibly biased is that i i love the i i lead the ground-based observations for dart oh nice um really yeah so it's gonna be super exciting
2: how do you do all of this and you're also a professor uh-huh. <laughs> like you do mom. so much you're a mom like that's insane that is so cool
1: it's true like i i have to prioritize <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> yeah there's No a I'm kidding. Of, there's a lot
1: of other stuff that doesn't get done sometimes but yeah no i mean i it, it's, it's been very exciting. You know, I was able to take my toddler to the launch of dart and she actually got to see that. Like I I do do things because Uh especially with the pandemic, I think she thinks I just kind of sit in my home office and (laughs) 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 play (laughs) on the computer. That's crazy. That is so cool.
0: It's amazing. It's, uh, like, I believe you. But also like a part of me is like, come on. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, come how?
0: How? It's insane. And then you're just like hanging out in Arizona. Like it's yeah. it's so funny. Um and it's it's been interesting throughout this podcast series. Uh like sitting down with like Kathy Olkin, like mm-hmm. Dr. Olkin from from Lucy. And it's just like uh And I think this is really good for our audience too. just, these are like normal people like moms, uh, you know, partners, uh, hanging over at NAU like, Oh yeah, yeah, I I worked with Larry Wasser, like all of this stuff where it's just like, this is just how cool astronomy is. And, uh, it's it's amazing to hear these stories from someone who's just like as laid back like Christina like you're just like oh yeah no it's a, oh yeah I am also leading that thing it's like how that's <laughs> that's insane
1: it was so cool yeah I mean once the data starts coming down from JWST and Dart I I feel like I'm just not going to sleep anymore but yeah <laughs> yeah it's the calm before the storm so <laughs>
0: right right and you lead ground based operations for Dart observations uh, what would observations yeah so what is a ground-based observation look like for DART because that's most of the observations for DART right is that just not including the
1: JWST or well I mean I I guess it's uh, it it basically is all the observations Um, (laughs) yeah I mean so normally speaking you would have a spacecraft that would be taking your observations but we're going to uh, Impact with our spacecraft, right? So we're not going to have a spacecraft anymore. Um, we do have a, a cubesat that's that's going along that will be observing the ejecta plume for a little bit as it, you know, comes out of Dimorphos. Uh, but essentially, you know, the the primary focus of of our observations is to get the light curve, which is telling us about the position of Dimorphos relative to Didymos. So that's the moon relative to the larger object, and so it's. Uh, It's going around in such a way that when the object goes behind or in front, from our perspective, there's a little dip in the light. And so we can use that to figure out how the period changes from before the impact to after the impact.
0: Uh, And before people start freaking out uh, listening to the podcast, could you just explain what DART is, like what's happening
1: with DART? (laughs) Yeah. So DART is NASA's uh, first test of a kinetic impactor for planetary defense. Uh, which essentially, uh, you know, all of those words is to say that we're going to impact into the moon of a binary near Earth asteroid. Uh, and by doing that, uh, we're going to change the orbit of that moon around the larger object. Uh, and so what we want to do is to think about, like, if you had to impact into an asteroid, like, how does that uh, how does that physics experiment happen? Like, how do you, how would you do that if we actually had to do that in order to avert? uh, some sort of impact into the planet.
0: That's terrifying. I like mean, Armageddon. Cool. I'm sorry, but that's also Armageddon. <laughs> that's literally the plot of Armageddon. Um, so have you been working with Dr. Dan Derda at all? Actually, uh, no. You haven't. Okay. No, he... different, different
1: sides of a, uh, of a very interesting problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cause I know that he was, uh, he was a guest on our podcast as well, kind of talking about just like crashing asteroids into each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's insane. Uh, and there are no, um, you know, this is, uh, this moon, which I guess now moons orbit asteroids. Good to know. Um, and nothing will really be super affected in, in space, right? This isn't like we're, uh, he, being he, too human <laughs> and like kind of <laughs> messing around out there. This is, uh, no big impacts on our syst- our solar system
1: or, Right. I mean, that's one of the many reasons that we decided to impact into the moon of a larger object, right? So all we're doing is changing the orbit of that moon around that Didymos, Hmm. as opposed to changing the orbit of anything around the sun. Right. Does the moon have a name? It's called Dimorphos. Dimorphos.
0: Dimorphos.
2: That's a cool
0: name. And so, uh, Christina, if you were to discover uh, uh, an asteroid or a comet, uh, what would
1: you name it? Oh, shoot. I don't know. Got to be ready for that. I mean, you never know. Yeah, you surveys. Be ready for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, so I'm I, I mostly not on the discovery side, so I've never really thought about it. But mm-hmm. I, I I mean, have surveys,
0: to... that's how most of them were found, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, so that's, you know, that's a good point. I feel like everybody's got like their own little inside joke with how they named a bunch of things. And so I'm gonna <laughs> have to, to go think about something particularly. Yeah. Uh, Make it a nerdy. good pun. Yeah. Yeah. A good, nerdy
0: pun. It's gotta Mm -hmm. be punny. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm just like curious. Uh, so just some context of who you are today. So that's kind of like how you got into astronomy. Mm -hmm. Um, you work at NAU as a professor. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, what topics uh, do you teach? What classes do you provide at NAU? Uh,
1: so I, um, I'm on like two opposite ends of the class spectrum. I teach Uh, the large liberal studies, non-majors classes. And so I do a lot of introduction to astronomy where I get to do like the really fun slideshow through the universe, essentially, right? Like you want to know a little bit about everything, like that's the class for you. And so it's really exciting to introduce people to all of these topics. Uh, And then on the other side, I teach a graduate course about spectroscopy because that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about. Uh, So we think about, you know, the, the very fundamental parts of the physics of, of what is happening. Um, how do you model different spectra and things like that? And so I actually have ended up in a situation where most of our undergraduate majors never meet me because what? I am doing like both sides. And it's really unfortunate. I, I got to say, I, I feel like I need to change something up. But, but that's where <laughs> I am right now.
0: Rem- cool. Remote, like you're doing remote classes, or
1: oh no, they never meet you because I I I don't teach in their in their uh, sequence.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Cool. I mean, you've got like five full time jobs. No big deal, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so,
2: um, so I do have a question. Um, how? Uh, this is like a completely different field. You know, we talked about your uh, teaching. Uh, but for your research, how were you selected for your grants from NASA? Like, what, what types of research were your grants used for? Because uh, we see that you have nearly 2.5 million in Insane. active grants from NASA. <laughs> Insane.
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, a lot of those have to do with um, my observations of asteroids using spectroscopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that includes the, the MIT survey, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so that's a large spectroscopic survey of near-Earth asteroids. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I've also done, uh, a couple of surveys of things in the main asteroid belt. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, funds associated with the DART mission and those observations. And so there are various different processes that I've gone through. Most of them are writing proposals directly to NASA. Um, but essentially every single thing that I have gotten funded to do has something to do with using a telescope. Uh, that's you know kind of my my forte. Uh, most of them are on the ground, but I've I've kind of expanded out and used Hubble and of course JWST soon. Nice. Um, and so so it's all just various different telescopic efforts to better understand a lot of the objects in our solar system. You would be so hard to play two truths and a lie with
0: because right. like <laughs> some of the stuff you just throw out. It's like, excuse me, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, I'm I'm uh
2: leading ground based yeah. dart, I have time on the James yeah. Webb Space Telescope.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, the <laughs> Hubble Fish Posh, like, what girl? Um, that's awesome. And then, just like, final question here, uh, I I mean, our, just the marketing team at Lowell in general absolutely adores you, Christina. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we see you very much as a way to like to inspire next generations of STEM leaders, um, like women in STEM, anyone really in STEM to be inspired by your, your journey and your, what you've accomplished and are yet to accomplish, um, so my question would be if uh, there was someone, a woman or a young uh, student interested in STEM, uh, what's something that you would tell them as far as like uh, something encouraging or some advice or something like that to get even like a miticum of the success that you've uh, seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. And I think it really depends on on who the person is, right. Cause like there's mm. a wide range of ages and, and things like that. Mm. But um, you know, one of the things that I've been really grateful for is having a lot of good mentors and co-mentors, which I, uh, mm. you know, is, is essentially people of my, of my same academic level that I can still bounce ideas off of. Um, and, and so I think maybe that you know, boils down to, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to ask someone for help sometimes. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I never would have gotten through my undergraduate education if I just never asked for help. Like it just yeah. wouldn't right. have happened. Um, yeah. And so, you know, and maybe you should be a little discerning about who that person is so that you can really feel like someone understands you and, you know, respects mm-hmm. you and things like that. Um, but but certainly, like if you try to do it all by yourself, it's it's not going to work out very well. Uh, you're going to drown least, pretty quickly. Yeah, you're just going to wear yourself down. Um yeah. But one of the great things about the community that I have found myself in is that it 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 can be. It doesn't have to be, but it can be very collaborative. It can be very supportive. And if you you know find the right group of people to surround yourself with, then I think that mm-hmm. um, everyone can can succeed together. And I, I don't want to oversimplify and say that all of astronomy is like that because it certainly isn't, but I think that mm-hmm. you could make your own, uh, you know, space to succeed. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. Love that. I love that so much. Uh, very similar to what, uh, Lena Levine, um, a career, uh, guided, like a career consultant had was just like, find your network, find your people and lean on your mentors. So yeah. that checks out. So yeah, we are uh, out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Thomas, for taking the time to join our podcast and just talk about how freaking awesome you are and uh, a bit about the James Webb and what we all have to look forward to the next few
1: years. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun.
2: Totally, thanks for coming. And uh, to all our listeners out there, I would like to remind you that we do have a Discord channel gone through a lot of upgrades over the last couple yeah. months so it, it looks really great uh, we also have a twitter where you can see some cool behind the scenes content i also like to like ask some questions on there about mm-hmm. you know get to know everybody who listens to us um, and you can use the hashtag ask star stuff or shoot a tweet over to at pod to ask us
0: any questions that you might have about life the universe and everything yeah. And uh, send in your questions for Christina and we'll send them over to her. Christina, if, if you would, wouldn't would mind fielding any questions from our audience about your career or research. Of course. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much. You're absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Uh, what, a, what an inspiring conversation. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu donate. Thanks for listening.